Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 358, and I had a conversation with Brandon Joe Williams. Brandon is a state national of California, common law lawyer, founder of the Amnesty Coalition. He's an author, Don't Be a Slave to Your Clients, and Love is a Battery. He's also a Scientologist. He's currently working on his third book. It's on martyrdom and escapism. We discuss his wild ride of a childhood, his rebel soul, the difference between a U.S. national of a state and a United States of America citizen, and what that means for tax requirements. And we also talked about his role within the Church of Scientology, how it's helped him, and we discussed their philosophies for self-reflection, growth, and change. Super fascinating conversation, really a a fun one. Um, Looking forward for you to hear it. This Saturday, April 22nd at 3.30 Pacific Standard Time, I'll be on the Genius Tea Time Show. You can sign up to watch it at opulentmobility.com. That's O-P-U-L-E-N-T-M-O-B-I-L-I-T-Y. Sign up there to be a part of the live Zoom show. There'll be a Q&A. You can ask me questions. And the proceeds from this go to the Opulent Mobility Accessibility Fund and to the Trevor Project. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links, Hey Human merch, and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. You can find my albums on Apple Music or wherever you get your music. My most recent record is called All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. Also, check out my relationships and sex show, Are We There Yet? with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube at Are We There Yet? podcast show. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey Human is an ad-free show. Your donations help keep it going. You can find the contribute button on heyhumanpodcast.com. All right. Thank you for listening. Be well. Be kind. Be love. Take care of each other. Stay safe. And let's get into this. Here we go. Brandon Williams, welcome to Hey Human. Hello. <laughs> How's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing, doing fine. It's a sunny day here today, so it makes me happy. Beautiful. Where are you at? Los Angeles. Oh, me too. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. I live over uh, in Santa Monica by the beach. Oh, very nice. I'm in Glendale. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah. No 12. <laughs> yeah. Let's jump right in. Tell me, uh, where'd you grow up? Where are you from? What was family life like? I grew up in Indiana, uh, in a small town at first, close to Gary and Chicago, uh, in Northwest Indiana, right, right up in like right up in the Northwest corner, basically. And um, I grew up on a bicycle. I basically lived on my bicycle. Um, I rode my bicycle all day until you know i'd come home at school and grab my bike and i'd just ride and ride and ride until you know 11 p.m or 10 p.m when it got dark and then i'd come home and then uh i ended up moving to a, a farm when i was about 10 and then i had motorcycles um because that's the only way to really get around and the cops don't really care too much as long as you're not well they really just don't care at all um and 
then I met a guy when I was about 14, 15 years old, and he was a car freak. And so him and I became close friends and we used to go on the back roads of Indiana. We would just drive around and look, look around and see like old derelict cars in someone's backyard or front yard. And we would just pull in and we would just knock on the door and say, hi, like we're, we're a couple of young, young dudes from this town over here. And, uh, we saw this old car out front and, and we were wondering if you, uh, wanted to get rid of it and whatever. And it was always the same story. It was always the wife going like, I've been telling my husband for three years to get that piece of shit out the front of the yard. And, and the, the wife was always so excited about us being there. And, um, and we ended up getting these cars for like 20, 40 bucks. And we, we would carry tools and an extra battery. And uh, I didn't really know anything about anything. I was just there to, to basically laugh and to egg, egg Mike on my buddy. We would get these cars and we would, we would just, we would just get them running and we would just destroy them or smash them into things or blow them up or whatever. And then we would take them to the junkyard. We would hook, we had a chain and we'd hook, hook a, a hook up to the car and I would be driving the broken car and we would just tow tow the car to the junkyard and they would pay by the ton and we would get like 240 bucks for a 20 40 dollar car and we just started doing that and then we, we started doing more and more and we started trading our way up and getting all sorts of crazy cars and sports cars and we we you know between me and my friends we probably had like 13 cars at all times and they were all sh- changing every single like 60 days it was like most of them had been replaced with something else so that was my my Indiana childhood in a nutshell. Yeah. Entrepreneur kid. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. And Mike Mike was the driving force, honestly. Uh he he taught me a lot about charisma and and sales. Not like not like like telling me how to do it, just watching him do it. It was so he's just like one of the most charismatic people I've ever I've ever seen in my entire life. And he just he was just uh, magical magical at handling these people and he just he just made them feel so good and you 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 would almost say like manipulative in a way but not really because it's like this this thing is a piece of shit the thing's gonna sit there forever you know the the wife doesn't even want it there we felt like we were doing them a favor because no one else is going to come around and and grab these things you know so yeah it it was it was pretty amazing pretty amazing uh, uh experience actually i mean for for indiana being as boring as it was in the middle of nowhere we had a lot of excitement, a lot of high-speed chases, not with cops, but with other people. We used to drive around and uh, we used to drive around and 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 fuck with people real bad uh, and try to get them to chase us. And then we would go, we would get ourselves in high-speed chases on purpose. That was uh, pretty pretty crazy. That was a, a very thrilling. Those were very thrilling experiences. We've had guns pulled on us and stuff. So uh, yeah, it's it's. It's uh I'm very happy to be alive. We didn't crash. Um we've done Dukes of Hazard jumping over train tracks. Um you know, going way up in the air. We we built a track in my friend's backyard. We used to do destruction derby, our own personal little destruction derbies and and somehow I came out of it pretty much unscathed. Motorcycles and and cars and all the craziness and I don't think we ever really had anything where I got hurt badly. So Did um, you ever cross the wrong person? No, the closest we ever had to a really bad experience was, was Mike was in handcuffs on the side of the road. (laughs) 
<laughs> such assholes. We used to have this game we used to play called Access Denied, right? And and what Access Denied is is that we would go like thirty five and a fifty five, and we would piss off the person behind us. It was a two lane kind of kind of freeway kind of a thing, like a country type freeway. And then as soon as the person behind us would start to try to pass us, we were in a sports car, we would speed up really, really fast. And there's no way they could get in front of us. And then then we would slow back down again. I mean, it was, it was in a place like Indiana where everyone has guns. I mean, looking back, it probably wasn't the best choice of games, but we ended up doing that with somebody one time and we, we drove out of town and, and we see these, these lights, this cop car lights coming up on us like probably 130 miles an hour from town we pull over the cop comes up and he has a, one of those big mag light uh flashlights and he hits the side of the car we, we've been sitting there for like 20 minutes and and all of a sudden he comes up and hits the side of the car with a mag light and he's like he's like open up the door or roll down the window roll down the window he's like uh, uh the window's broken and we all have like our hands up like this and you can't see anything all you see is just the lights in the back and then the, the spotlight and it's like blinding you can't see anything right i was with my friend uh mike and then the the two mics actually uh the, but the the one that i'm mainly referring to is the one who was driving he literally it was broken on both sides i mean these cars all of these cars that we were driving were all borderline derelict cars okay if anything worked in any of these cars it was a miracle and so he came around the other side the cop came around the other side the passenger side hit the other side with a with a with a flashlight and and said you know uh, open up the door slowly and throw out your ids so we're like opening up this door really really slowly and like throwing out our ids like this right and he ended up pulling mike out of the car uh handcuffing him and putting him on the curb and i don't like to this day it's still like one of the most miraculous things mike talked his way out of it and talked his way out of being handcuffed right and then he gets back in the car and then as soon as the cop is ready to let us go he starts to antagonize the cop I'm like, Mike, please. I'm like, Mike, please don't. He's like, no, no. He's like, this is ridiculous. And I'm I'm just like, dude, please don't antagonize the police officer. That that was just Mike. Mike, Mike was the sweetest guy when he was, you know, in handcuffs or had a gun to his face. And as soon as he knew that you were backing down, he would, he would start coming at you again. And um, Mike sounds a little bit like a sociopath. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, Mike is. Uh, he is he is a professional at skirting the edge of danger. He's so good at it because because as soon as it as soon as it starts to teeter over, even just like a millimeter too much, he pulls it right back. He he wants to find that razor's edge all the time, and and that's why we did all this shit for for two and a half years, two and a half three years, and I never got hurt, never got beat up, never got shot. Damn close, we never got arrested been on handcuffs a couple times we had a blast i mean we skirted the edge of danger and and lived to tell the story so how did he uh, talk his way out of a 120 mile an hour car chase well the cop the well the 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 police officer was going 120 or 130 miles an hour to catch up to us but we were going the speed limit but we were out of town already i got it so he was trying to catch up to us and we saw him way back there and so we didn't speed up and try to try to try to get away from him we just we just stuck to the speed limit 55 and he was up on us like like that because he was probably going like 130, 140, um, trying to catch up to us, right? But in terms of what did the police officer actually witness, he witnessed a car driving out of town going 55 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone. What was that, the impetus to make him come after you, you think? Well, the apparently the people who we were playing the access denied with were absolutely terrified for their life. And they called the police from their car 
very, very, very small town. Literally not even a pit stop town, basically. Like a country town, right? So I'm sure the cops get a call. Uh, some some crazy red Mustang GT, 1986 Mustang GT is doing all this crazy ass shit. And they're like, finally, something exciting in this town. And they're, you know, they're jumping the car and drive because, you know, domestic disturbances and and driving drunk is pretty much the the highlight of 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 these small towns you know what i mean sure meth maybe a little bit yeah yeah was it a close family or was it one of those families for example i was the youngest kid so by the time i came along they just basically said see you around if you want food there's food in the refrigerator see you when i see you was it like that or were you in a tight family it was just me and my mom and my mom uh I was I was getting expelled out of schools left and right to the point where the state of Indiana wouldn't even let me legally go back into the public school system. My mom was a paralegal, so she so she sued the state of Indiana and she said I can't afford private school and and I'm going to get in trouble if if my kids not in school, so I don't even know what to do. I, my hands are tied. Like the school system won't accept him. So so the the school system of Indiana actually took a, a therapy facility, a private therapy facility, cut it in half and turned half of the building into a school. We had a nurse, we had teachers, we had everything, and they were all trained in martial arts. Okay. And I was probably about eight or seven years old. I didn't know a single thing about hand-to-hand combat or defense or martial arts or any of that, right? It was a full-blown school that was opened for me and this other kid named Mitchell, quite a bit bigger than me, uh, quite a bit older than me, and and he had a extreme anger problem to the point where you say something just a little bit off, and he just will start wailing on you, right? Like like incessantly. Hence why he wasn't allowed back in public school anymore. So I was with this kid that that probably if I would have just accidentally said the wrong thing would have just killed me right there in the school. But the cool thing was, is that like socially, I was the only choice of a friend that he had. There was nobody else in the school. So it's like, Hey, Mitchell, like, I, you know, it was like, it was like, he could say something that wasn't funny. I was laughing. You know what I mean? It was kind of like that. That was the kind of relationship we had. Like, oh man, you're the best. You're the greatest. You're the funniest. <laughs> Look at me. I'm not a, I'm not an enemy. <laughs> don't kill me. Don't kill me. You know, like that was kind of like my, my relationship with with Mitchell uh and and he hated me obviously which is fine but but he didn't he never attacked me and more kids started coming into the school and then we had this kid named Richie who was also major 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 anger problems so i i grew up this tiny little kid in this school filled with big strong men who have massive anger problems and they won't hesitate to kill you that sort of was a really fascinating experience of how to handle myself. And I think a lot of, I think that was kind of very formative for me because it was sort of like, um, uh, I learned how to be very <laughs> friendly and joking and, and Hey, look at me. Don't kill me. Come on now. You know, you played uh, the jester. Yeah. So, so it was a huge, I mean, I was already kind of the jester before that, but, but at that point, it, it, it I, I sort of really started to to move into that more and more and more because it became a, a survival mechanism at that point. And then I ended up graduating that school, going back into the public school system, but they put me in special ed. But I wasn't really, I was with all these like uh, 
kids that had like really serious issues, like in wheelchairs and stuff like that. So it was kind of weird, but I, I was like, I was like, fuck it. I was like, this is cool. I was like, uh, I could cheat on all my exams because what all the special ed kids were allowed to leave the course room during exam time and go to the special ed course room. And the special ed teacher would literally just assist you with anything you needed help with. So I would just pretend like I didn't understand anything. Oh, Mrs. Uh, Oh, what's her name? Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Hanner, Mrs. Harper, or something like that. Oh, Mrs. Harper, I don't understand number eight. Can you help me? Oh, well, you just you know do this and you do that. And you, oh, and then what do you do here? And I would just I would just feed her into giving me the answers for everything, and I ended up getting a core forty. It was just like right underneath honors. I ended up getting a core forty, and I swear to God, like I didn't know a goddamn thing. I didn't answer any of those questions. So you basically were super duper ADHD trying to make it through public school who had yeah. no idea what to do with you. What was kicking you out of your school when you got kicked out? I was the class clown to the point where they couldn't even physically teach the class. Like I would just be cutting jokes and doing this and saying things and cutting off the teacher and making jokes and I would just take over the course room. So it wasn't like violent. It wasn't like anything like violence or 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 anything like illegal. It was just it was just I literally like would just take over the course room. And, and the school that you went into had martial arts instructors for teachers? Yeah, so everyone was martial arts trained. The the nurse was martial arts trained, the assistant was martial arts trained, and even the well the reason why is cuz these kids were were fucking dangerous. I mean really fucking dangerous. Like like we're talking prison like prison danger, right? And all the teachers and all the nurse and everybody else, they were all female. Everyone was all female staff. I don't know why. I don't know if that was on purpose or if that was just kind of like, I mean, when it comes to like therapy and healing and, and kids and stuff, you see a lot more women generally, right? But 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 it was all women. And I remember the the, the one main woman, uh, her name was Tina. And and she looks like um she looks like G.I. Jane and she has she had a mullet. Okay. And she was rail thin and she would just, she would take like a grown man and, and judo fucking throw your ass like across a whole fucking room, literally. Right. She was like pure power in this tiny little frame. Right. And, and she was so nice and so kind until you, until you went too far. And then she would, she would fucking body slam these kids and shit. And then they were like kids. They were like 14. They were like big you know, but she's like this tiny, tiny, thin little mullet, fucking huge mullet all the way down the back of her head. And man, she was absolutely terrifying uh, in a way. She was super, super great and sweet and everyone's favorite as long as you didn't piss her off. And then when you pissed her off, she was the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, she will she will flip you around and put you in an arm bar or an arm lock or or like like jujitsu your ass so fucking fast. There's nothing you can do. And it's like, it's not, she doesn't even sweat. Like, it's just like, she doesn't even like sweat. You're just a fucking pretzel. So, so you get out of high school. What happens next? Uh, I went to college, which was a, a one year party. I, I, I went to college and which is so dumb, but I, I ended up going to my first class, which is like a math class. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening to all this math stuff, which I didn't really care to listen to. And I go to the front and I ask the professor, I say, hey, you know, I'm here to learn computers. I'm not sure why I'm in a math class. And he said, oh, he says the, the, first, the first two or four years of college is pretty much mostly general studies. And I go, what the hell is general studies? 
well, you know, like the same stuff you were studying in high school, like English and math and science. And I go, well, fuck college. And that was it. I said, fuck this. This is dumb. And I just partied for the whole rest of the year. <laughs> I ended up pledging two different fraternities, which is like actually illegal. If either one would have found out that I was pledging the other one, I would have gotten kicked out of the other one. I ended up getting kicked out of them both anyways, regardless. But uh, it was pretty fun, pretty wild times. Basically, just a just a one year party between two fraternities. Essentially, what'd um, you get kicked out of for? I got kicked out of the skulls, which is I think Phi Sigma Kappa. Um, I forget why you get three balls, three black balls. They call them right, and uh, the skulls. They did a whole movie on the skulls. It's like this whole dark, like. Uh, secret society type thing which which i only experienced a little tiny bit of that i don't i don't really think it's necessarily like this dark evil thing i think there is a there is like a secret society aspect to it but i'm not sure if it's really that evil i think it's more or less just in that particular circumstance of where i went the chapter that i was at i don't really think it was like evil necessarily i think it was just kind of like a power trip kind of like you know they never really hurt any of us or anything it wasn't like that and then you think to yourself well if they kept going down that line could that something like that have developed i don't really know but there was hazing i mean hazing obviously you're going to see that kind of anywhere i think that's all kind of like secret now because it's it's not the the it was never anything horrific or terrible or anything like that they used to they put us in a, in a room and they lined us up along the wall with our face like on the wall and they had us hold a a, a weight up like this where it was really uncomfortable and they had us all uh recite the greek alphabet so it's like alpha beta gamma and if any one person fucked it up then we would go back to the beginning and have to we were all holding this thing and this and that and then they made us run across the whole campus trying to get girls panties and bras and all this other kind of random items that we had to get and we had to get it all within like a certain amount of time. So we're like running around the campus trying to talk to girls and get all this crazy ass shit, which was actually really fun. Uh, but they made us all like stay together. So like the fat kid in the back, like we're both like have our arms, his arms over us trying to like carry him because he's just, like fat and slow. Like, come on, let's go, you know. And then they it was one time when they put put us up against the wall and they were like yelling at us and 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 then they said like if you get turned around right now you're out you're out of the fraternity and then they turned all of us around we were all blindfolded they turned all of us around and then they then they took the blindfold off and it was all just a joke it was actually just big brother night which was the night that they uh like like assigned a brother of the fraternity to you as a big brother but then you had to drink like a whole bottle of liquor that evening and we all got blacked out and uh i, I remember going to bed that night and there was a rule in the fraternity where if you have your shoes on when you pass out, they can fuck with you, right? And I remember uh, laying down and thinking, these guys are so awesome. I love these guys so much. I think this whole shoes on thing is bullshit. I'm going to keep my shoes on, right? And I woke up the next morning and I had a, a final, actually, which I was didn't have a hope in hell of doing anything with anyways. And I woke up and and I get up and people are like laughing at me. And I'm like, what are you laughing at? And they're like, you need to go look in the mirror. And I go look in the mirror and they had taken permanent marker, Sharpie permanent marker, and they had colored in my entire face black. Like everything was black. And then they put 
swastikas on my throat all the way around my entire neck right and and they're not racist it's, it wasn't like a racist thing you think like oh it's super racist no it's just it was just literally just they just wanted to like totally fuck up my my day and my life and like that was the that was the penalty for going to sleep with your shoes on so <laughs> i ended up getting three black balls i don't know i just didn't care like they would have they would want me to do this and do that and i'm like fuck you like i don't care like i'm not gonna do that or whatever like that during rush week you have to do like uh tasks for every single one of the brothers and there's like a whole list and there's like all the stuff you have to do and go do this and go do that and they they treat you like they're bitch basically right which is like normal right um and i just i just didn't really care enough to try and do all that and and by the third black ball they called me down into this uh the main like four area and they were all in like these black robes. They said, you know, uh, Brandon, you've been summoned before us, blah, blah, blah. That that part was was kind of creepy. That that part I had never seen like that side of it quite like that before. And it was uh it was a third black ball that I had gotten. And I forget, I forget if they gave me something. And they said that I was banned from every single chapter of the Phi Kappa Sigma, which is the skulls. I was banned from every single Phi Kappa Sigma chapter uh, in the in the world forever, basically. And it was really very creepy. All the they were all in black robes, and there was this like a um, like a pew, like a like a dais kind of a thing. And then they escorted me off the property, actually. And then the other fraternity that I that I pledged, they were just a bunch of like super chill metalheads, basically. They would they were like. There was like a bunch of drum sets and guitarists and like they all just listened to metal and they just like didn't give a flying fuck about anything. And how I got kicked out of that one, I don't even know because like they literally didn't care about anything. But again, it was just like I just didn't care enough about the the rules and the structure and the and the the ritual of what what the fraternities do during rush week and with new applicants is is very serious it, even even for the most unserious fraternities the 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 rituals are are very very are taken very very seriously and 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 as you go up from from the the lower fraternities meaning the ones that are just total fucking who cares like party houses everyone's just fucked all the time and no one gives a shit even those guys care about the rituals but as you go up 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 into the more I guess you could say like elite fraternities, which is where all like the pretty boys and from the rich families are at that, that shit is like a full blown religion at that point. Um, so, so it's really, uh, I, I thought it was absolutely fascinating, but it just wasn't something that I was really gonna like, I just didn't care enough to really get through any of it, you know? So fascinating. All right. So what happens next? Then I, I flunked out of college with like a point one one gpa maybe or like maybe lower like a 0. 0.08 or something and then after that i i a bunch of things changed in my life and then i ended up moving to chicago and then i was in chicago for a while and then i moved to los angeles uh what happened my mom got really sick and and basically what happened was she went so we took her to a whole bunch of different hospitals and stuff and um uh, no one could figure out what was wrong with her. And it was just getting worse and worse and worse, like, like bad, like, like she's going to be dead here pretty soon. So she kind of took 
took matters into her own hands and she said, if I don't do something with this, I want to be dead real fast. Right. And she had a, a will to live, you know? So she went to the library and she got like shit loads of books from everybody. Eckhart Tolle, uh, Tony Robbins, you name it. She, she got it. Nutrition, diet, this, that philosophy, this, that one of the books she ended up reading uh, was Dianetics actually. And, and she, she called a house meeting and she said, I read this book called Dianetics and it's part of this religion called Scientology. And she's like, I want to, I want to go and check out this religion. And, and we had never heard of any of this. We had never heard of Dianetics, Scientology, Elron Hubbard, nothing. Cause we're in yeah. the middle of nowhere. Right. Who is the, we at this point. So it's not just you and your mom, but other people, obviously stepdad and then little brother. Right. Got it. And my mom was like, I want to go to Chicago and I want to, I want to look at this, this religion. And, and I want you guys to come with me because she wasn't in very good health. Like, she's like, I'm not going to drive into the big city by myself, which is not happening. Right. And I need you guys to come with me and like support me. And I was like flunked out of college twice, like playing grand theft auto three at the time, I think. And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, I mean, you, you had me already at let's go to Chicago. Like, I don't really care where we're going. You could be like, I want to go get some hot dogs. And I've been like, yes, please. God, let's go. Right. So we ended up going to the church in Chicago and I loved it. And I was like, this is actually super amazing. Uh, so I ended up selling everything I owned pretty much, which is very little, like some comic books and stuff and moving to Chicago to be close to the church. And I ended up working for the church. And then I ended up moving to Los Angeles to work for the church. And then I moved to Florida to work for the church. And then I was back in Chicago for a short time. Then I was in New York city and I was working for the church there for about five years. What did you like about it? There was a, I had always had a hard time studying. Studying was always my, my huge, like I couldn't really learn via words on a page. It was like impossible. If someone like, like my buddy, Mike, he would show me how to rebuild engines or fix cars and stuff. And like, I could get things super fast like that. Right. If I could see it, but, but reading on a page just didn't, I was basically illiterate essentially. Right. And, and the, so, so when I went to the church the first time, I told them, I was like, I was like, I want to be able to like study. Well, the two things that I wanted when I started in the church was I wanted to have a girlfriend. That was a big issue for me. And I wanted to be able to read. That was the, but reading was, was pretty much my number one problem. Right. And you're about 22, 23 at this point. 19. Okay. And uh, they said, we have this course called the basic study manual course. And it's basically uh, how to study. And and he he had me take a piece of paper, and he said, "I'll I'll explain this to you." He said he said draw a house, and I drew a little house, right? And he said, "Good, now draw a uh, draw a sun." And then I drew a sun, and then he said, "Okay, now draw some birds in the air." I said, "Okay, okay," and he said, "Now draw a daub." And I looked at him, and I'm like, "What the fuck is a daub?" And he goes, Dob, the definition of the word Dob is a lake. And I go, okay. And I drew a lake. And he says, do you see what happened when you didn't understand the definition of that word? And I said, well, yeah, it prevented me from, from doing anything. And I couldn't draw the, 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 the lake because I didn't know what a Dob was. He said, exactly. He said, he said, the definitions of the words prevent you from studying and taking action and taking what you're reading and applying it. And he said, we have this course called the basic study manual course. And I looked at my parents and I go, this is, this is saying it's really cool. Like I'm down for this. If you guys want to pay for this, I'll, I'll do this for sure. 
and I, and I did the basic study manual course. And during the course, um, they have these little kids and the kids are like acting out these various like emotional and physical reactions that a person will have towards certain barriers to study. Like for example, uh, absence of mass makes you feel bored, makes you feel exasperated or angry. And they have like a whole page and it just says, makes you feel bored. And it has this little kid and he's like this. And then the next page just makes you feel exasperated and your kid's like angry, like breaking a pencil or something like that. And it was like a children's book almost. Right. And I was looking at this thing and I was like, this thing is so specific. Uh, and, and, and I started to, to apply a little bit of it. And, and I started to see that, that these, these particular manifestations are exactly what happens in those situations. And I saw it for myself and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. There's something here. Like this is, this is serious. And one of the things they talk about incessantly in the book is the misunderstood word and misunderstood word makes you feel uh, blank, makes you, makes you, it gives you a washed out feeling when you hit a misunderstood word and you keep reading everything after the misunderstood word is blank. So you have to, so they teach you, you go back to where you were last doing well. And then right at the tail end, you're going to find a word that you don't have the correct definition for, or you have no definition for. They teach you an entire technology of how to clear. So you go into a dictionary, you find the correct definition that applies to that particular situation. You clear that up by making sentences and stuff like that. Then you clear up every single other definition. Then you study the entire etymology of the word, which just takes a few moments. But you study the whole etymology of the word. When what what when did it come from? What did it mean at that time? What did it mean before that? What was the purpose for it? You study the timeline of the word. Then you go back to where you were reading, and then you continue reading from that point forward. And then now all of a sudden you don't have that blankness anymore. And so I started doing this. Like rooted in platonic philosophy or something. Yeah. So I started I started applying this and I realized that I didn't know the definition of basically any word at all. Like, like the whole book, every single word on every single page, but basically I didn't know the definition for it. So I was like, well, that makes sense. So I started basically clearing up literally every single word, even and, or, are, is, uh, you name it. Uh, what's a semicolon? I don't know. You know, when, when I started doing that and I was like, oh my God, like, I just barely started to be able to read at that point. And that's when I was like, this is huge. Uh, I want to, I want to be involved in this a lot. And, and at that time I had already funked out of college two times and and I wasn't going anywhere and I was in the middle of nowhere in Indiana and it, it sucked. So to find something that I was like, yes. And, and to have an opportunity, not only to get involved in that, but to also move to the big city, it was a no brainer. I was, I was out of there, man. Boom, now, did like, you have to go through the other processes that we've all heard about with the theodins and all that, where they measure you and ask you deep personal things, or is that more? The, it, it's, it's not anything like what, what people talk about it, just like everything else. It's nothing like that at all whatsoever. There is a thing called auditing, which is essentially an applied religious therapy. And there is a, a, a meter that measures uh, resistivity of mental mass. So there, there is that, but it's, it's actually specific processes that you actually do. Like, for example, 
there's a communication section of processing that you do as you're as you're doing processing of something you want to do. And and basically what they do is is the whole point of the communication section of the processing is to make you feel comfortable talking about any subject and to be able to handle anyone with communication alone, right? So what you do is you use they're using the meter to try to locate areas that you don't want to talk about, such as it, it registers anxiousness. Maybe it it registers uh, uh, electrical resistance. That can be transmuted into anxiousness, I imagine, because when we're anxious about something, our body starts putting out extra energy, right? People get fidgety and anxiousness. Yeah. So anxiousness is more of like a frantic energy like this. Right. And, And you can actually that's a different type of. So so on the on the e meter, there's a there's a a needle. And the needle will move in one direction if there's resistance on the on the electrical line, and it'll move in the other direction if there's a release on the electrical line. When you ask someone questions and you start to get electrical resistance, there's certain things that you do to help break through that. So basically, the way it works is truth creates a release, lies create resistance, right? When you're doing, and I'm a trained auditor and I've done multiple internships, so... When you when you're asking when you're going through a diagnostic phase with auditing, meaning like you're trying to locate what area you're going to start to attack for for processing, what you're doing is you're asking questions that trigger a release because the release indicates truth, right? So you you so let's say for example the question is uh, uh, who is suppressing your life, and you say mom, dad, brother, sister. So when you see sister and you get the release on sister, that shows you that the truth of the answer to the question is sister. Now, let's say, for example, the person has multiple sisters. You're going you're gonna to create a list, Jane, Jennifer, and uh, Mary. Jane, Jennifer, Mary. Now that the one, Jennifer, the one where you saw the release, that becomes the item that you now process. Do you remember, I don't know if you've ever done this, but uh, in some, uh, what do you call it, uh, allergy testing, there's this thing where they hold your hand and say, almond flour, and then you don't budge. And then they say, wheat flour, and then your arm goes flying up. They're like, oh, you're allergic to wheat flour. And you think, what is this witchery? But it's just your body's autosomatic response mechanism. Yeah, I, my ex-girlfriend is is uh, uh, really big into that. It's called um it's called uh there's actually a whole technology to it. It's called uh I've done it. It's really fascinating and it's quite spot on uh in my experience at least. And Yeah, like like your arm will go limp when it's something that it doesn't want and it'll go strong when it's something that it does want body yeah. reaction and yeah. they and they, she used to take like, well, she still does. She'll take like a vitamin and she'll put it up against your chest and then she'll push on your thing. And then she'll take the next one, push on the thing, push on the thing. And then it goes limp. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it's, it's the same basic idea, but, but you're holding these metal cans and there's a small, teeny, tiny, totally imperceptible amount of electricity going through the cans. And then, and then your emotional state either contracts or or loosens the electrical flow through the body, right? It's like a lie detector test in a way. It's, it's similar. It's similar to a, an electrogalvometer, which is a really old thing that uh, 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 chiropractors used to use way back in the day. 
it's funny as you're describing too the idea like uh what is keeping me from moving forward in my life and then you're like is it mom is it dad is it sister and all these you know you go through all the different names i would think that on some deep resonant level, as soon as the person says, is it me? That it would go flying over the other side because ultimately we are the masters of all of that. Yeah. But we go through these little levels of our self-deception and because it's so painful to touch a part of ourselves that says, I'm at the root of everything. Yeah. And that is ultimately where everyone winds up when they're doing auditing or therapy. I mean, really in any area, I mean, if you do it long enough, usually that's where people wind up. Right. Uh, but, but basically the whole, the whole point of auditing is to audit the person where they're at and not go too far above or below where they're at, but to just kind of like, it's a gradient step, right? Like right now, sister is holding. Them sure. Back, I right? get that meeting people where they are makes. Yeah. Sense. So, so that's kind of the whole point of it, it's, it's a gradient increase of awareness and perception and responsibility up to a certain point where a person can start to have these more larger realizations for themselves, right? That is the whole point essentially of auditing, but truthfully, that essentially is kind of the whole point of almost any type of therapy, if you think about it. So I find it fascinating. It's it's very, 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 very scientific. It It takes a lot of very ethereal things that people have been exposed to. And it just completely grounds it into a complete step-by-step scientific technology in a lot of ways. Uh, like uh, touch healing is one thing that you learn in in Scientology. There's a lot of things that we do that that you'll see in other areas. And it's just it's just done in such a precise scientific way that's the part that's so unique about it. It's, it is it is truly a merging of the, the science and the spiritual world into one uh, element, essentially. It's very openly not an enemy of healing. People who intend to heal intend to help others, and people who intend to heal and intend to help others are friends of other people who intend to help others. So it gets, it gets a little bit muddied, and, and people say like, oh, this is better and that's better, but I try to stay away from all that. I think I think intent, just like in the law, which is why I'm here on this podcast, intent is everything. When you start to like in my life, when you start to really just focus on what is the intent, right? Like it's like children. You have the little baby and the baby pulls out all the garbage from the garbage can because the baby wants to help mommy and go throw away the garbage bag. And then the garbage bag breaks and there's trash everywhere and there's trash all over their whole body and they look at you and they smile. The, the intention was to help mommy. You know what I mean? So it's like when you start looking at the intentions of people, I think it's a, a, a huge breakthrough in, in, in life because, because you, you start to realize that people aren't really that bad. Most people are actually pretty awesome. And, and when you have that realization, that's a huge, it, it's a huge shift in, in your reality and your perception because your, your, your ability to trust and your ability to work with people and your ability to have professional success. And it, it's all hinged off of that, that perception of people and that people actually do try pretty dang hard and intend well as, as convoluted as that can be sometimes. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I have realizations about this stuff all the time. 
You know what I mean? So how do you feel about some of the things that are talked about within, you know, outside of Scientology about the inside of Scientology about, you know, oh, people aren't allowed to leave or you're not allowed to talk to your family members if you leave that are the people that are left behind. And have you experienced that? No, uh, the, the way it works is there, there is a system, uh, in place where basically, um, if a person is, is really, really, really toxic. And I mean, like really, really toxic. Like I've seen situations where, uh, someone like molest somebody else or something completely insane, like not anyone involved in the church, but somebody like external, to the church is doing something really fucked up, toxic or highly illegal. Okay. Uh, in those situations, the person who is being affected negatively by that particular individual is unable to make spiritual and emotional progress on their processing because the external toxicity level is beyond what the therapist can pull the person out of on a regular basis. They're being, they're being basically, they, they, they audit them a teeny bit and then they get smashed down and then they audit them a teeny bit and then they get smashed down. Uh, you see it a lot in toxic marriages. So what happens is, is that there's actually policy at the church, okay, that basically states that if if the therapist cannot get stable gains for the the person receiving the therapy, and the gains are not stable, and the gains are not above and beyond what the toxic person can push them down to, the person is sort of parked in a different area of the church. And that person has to now handle the source of that toxicity before they are allowed to continue in their therapy for two, for two reasons. First off, when they go up and down and up and down and up and down like that, that you can actually, actually, they actually start going kind of crazy a little bit uh, because the, it's this emotional roller coaster and it can be like massive. It can be like really violent. Okay. The second thing is, is it's not a fucking secret. This type of therapy is not cheap. Okay. So you're wasting the person's therapy time when they have this sort of toxic situation. Okay. Now they have two choices in that situation. They can either handle the toxic source. And there's actually an area in the church that will help that person handle dress to try to uh, uh, eliminate the toxicity but but still have the person in the in their life the the second choice is if they try to handle and there's literally policies on the fact that they're not supposed to just disconnect from the person that's not what you're supposed to do some people will do that by their own choice because they are excited about the therapy that they're getting and they just don't want to even deal with that person and they can't confront that person that's not how it's supposed to be done okay uh, they're supposed to be handling the person to the best of their ability. They're supposed to exhaust all of the handling possibilities first. Then if if the person is still a massive issue and 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 they've exhausted every single handling possible and the person is still completely preventing the the person or creating massive roller coaster emotionally, then they have to disconnect. Now, if they don't disconnect from the person, they will not be approved to continue their processing because it's fucking either A, it's worthless, or B, it's actually dangerous for the individual to be in that situation. 
what happens when you recognize someone within the church? Like, for example, in the Catholic church, let's say a parishioner comes to do confession. And in that confession, the parishioner says, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. I raped my sister's friend. The priest can't tell anyone. They're bound by a confessional. And so both parties have this weird agreement now. I can tell you the worst parts of myself, and you can't. It's sort of you're held hostage by the covenant of this confessional. So does is that happen also within your religion, where if somebody comes and says, I'm kind of a, a terrible person, how do y'all deal with that? There, there is a confessional procedure, uh, and it is, um, it is it the way that it works in its basic essence. Without getting into the 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 nitty gritties of exactly every single step in too much detail, but just giving kind of a broad overview of how it works is, uh, we call it an overt. Okay, so so in order for there to be an overt, there has to be a previous contract. So, for example, uh, a contract to be at work at a certain time, a contract to not date other people if you're in a relationship, a contract to uh, whatever the contract is, some kind of an agreement. There has to be an agreement first, and then the second part is that agreement has to be broken. So without a contract, there is no over. There has to be a contract for there to be an over, right? So, so what you do is, is if the person feels bad about something, they feel guilty about something, they feel ashamed about something. We trace that back to, uh, what was the contract? What, what was it that you agreed to? How was it broken? How did you feel it was broken? It's so subjective though. Do you know what I mean? People, people sometimes don't even know what they just feel that they broke a contract and they can't even really nail down the contract either. So there's, there's, there's obviously a lot to this. And then what we do is, is you run it back as a chain. So you run it back to earlier similar overts, earlier similar overts, earlier similar overts until there's a particular thing that occurs. It's called the end phenomena. It's an exact scientific end. And then the on the e-meter, you will actually get uh, uh, an electrical release that comes up on the e-meter as a floating needle where the needle sort of very, very gently floats back and forth, back and forth like this. Okay. So uh, that process is the, I just explained in in extremely simple terms, the confessional process of how the auditing procedure works. Now, the whole point of that is to release guilt and shame. And so like, like the confessional it's similar, but you're going earlier. The earlier similar part is what's so important because it's not, it's not, that particular overt, that's the problem. It's the chain because this new overt activates the chain and charges up the chain. And now you, now the person isn't experiencing shame and guilt for that particular action necessarily. They're feeling shame and guilt of all of the actions on the entire chain. So when you clean up the chain, they realize, oh, I'm actually not feeling guilty about this. I'm actually feeling guilty about this other thing that happened 20 years ago that I haven't thought about in 20 years. And, and this new thing that I just did actually reminded me of that subconsciously. And then at that point, you'll see the floating needle. And then at that point, you end off on that particular confessional chain. So so I'm just, let me see if I get this right. And I know we've gone off on all this tangent, but I am fascinated by all of this. Let's say I've murdered someone. This is, of course, the extreme. So I come and I talk to you 
And I was like, I murdered somebody. But then you say, well, what did you do before that? And I'm like, well, I, I don't know, hit somebody. And then you go before that. What'd you do with that? Oh, well, um, when I was 10, I kicked a dog. And then before that, okay, well, when I was seven, I killed a squirrel. It's that kind of thing where you just yeah. keep going. Now, again, you're, you're as, as a practitioner, you're looking at that e-meter the whole time, because if you're going toward truth, you're getting a release. If you're going toward a lie, you're going, it's, it, you're getting solidity. You're getting, a, um, you're, you're not getting a release. You're getting, a a compacting of energy or a, or a resistive energy. When you get the resistive energy, you know you're going in the wrong direction. So so sometimes the the person who you're auditing, it's all so overwhelming they can't they can't they can't navigate it very well, right? They're in the dark completely. And when you get that kind of thing, you have no choice but to operate entirely off the e-meter and you're just saying whatever you're saying, trying to get any reaction at all whatsoever, and you have to literally hunt in the dark to the point where you can take someone and you can actually use an e-meter and you can say something like, for example, I'm going to find out what your license plate is for your car without you saying a single word, get the idea of your license plate number in your head. And then you have a board behind you and you have numbers, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. And you can actually take a pencil and you can go boom, 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 boom. And you'll see that reaction on the, on the needle. And then you have a three and you write three. Second, second letter or number, and you go. Right. It's kind of like how mentalists work. The way the e-meter works is it works just a tiny bit below the person's awareness. After that point, it doesn't work anymore. Well, I, I get all of that. I guess my question is, what do you do if you come across someone that has done something outside of society? Let's just throw it out there. It could be anything. It's like the widget of badness, you know? What do you oh, do? oh, like how does that work in terms of like patient or uh, like? Yeah, like, do you kick like, them out of the church? Do you say, okay, we just keep our eye. This this person is never going to be around kids, or this person's going to have you know go work in the kitchens from now on, you know, or whatever that, it is. The the answer to that question is state law and federal law. Okay. So 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 certain states are very specific about what is protected in the confessional or any priest, uh, minister relationship and certain states protect certain things and certain states do not. And certain states are very specific about what has to be instantaneously reported, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's all very much like a confessional. That's what I was kind of getting at. Like what happens within that? It, it, it falls. There there is a, there is an entire internal justice system in the church of Scientology and there is an entire uh, legal code, and there are in fr- there are actually three different levels. There's errors, crimes, and high crimes, and there are particular penalties for all of that. It's literally the exact same thing as the U.S. Code. It's just a lot simpler and smaller to the point where you can learn the whole system in like a long afternoon. It doesn't take nine years to learn all of it. All of this is fascinating. There's even a court system in the church, actually. Uh, It's called a committee of evidence. And basically, the reason why it's called that is because the the focus of the entire, uh, it's just like a normal court case. But 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 the point, the reason why it's called, I think, the reason why it's called a committee of evidence is because normal law has de-evolved into this like horrific like procedural nightmare. The committee of evidence uh, procedure has zero uh, importance. It's it's completely and utterly evidence-based. 
and there is essentially a jury. It's it's a very similar system. Uh, it's just that it is. I mean, really, if you read a lot of the things like the right to a speedy trial, uh, it's a lot of the same stuff. It's just in a, a little bit of of a more classic format. It's kind of like a committee of evidence is sort of similar to what you would see in like a common law court from like 150 years ago. So Scientology sort of operates within its a sovereignty onto itself. Yes. Up to the point where state and federal law says it cannot. And then at that point, it flips over to the state and federal law level. So interesting. How long have you been in a Scientologist? Uh, since 2006. Okay. So wow. 2005. And what is your official title level wise? I I've done mostly a lot of like uh, uh training. So there's two different, there's two different uh, uh, pathways, so to speak, right? One is receiving the therapy and then moving up the different levels of receiving therapy. Like uh, on the lower levels, the first thing that you do is a, a body detox program called the purification rundown. And then you go through some other steps and then now you're into memory drills because you can't you can't do auditing if you don't have a strong memory so it's one of the first things that you address is strengthening your memory so you can remember things very clearly even like the smells and the things that you were thinking and the noises and stuff in an incident that you you drill being able to pick all that up colors and, and all that kind of thing and then from there you go into communication and you have to increase your communication if you can't communicate you can't you can't get through your therapy. The higher your communication level is, the more, the more, the better your therapy is going to go. And then from there you get into problems and then you go into confessionals. And, and then from there it goes up into all sorts of other craziness, right? So uh trauma is not addressed until after many, many, many of those levels have been completed. And then we get into what's called new era dianetics. And at that point is when we start to address physical trauma. Actually. Building their skills first. So you're building their skills and you're doing the baby steps and you you don't the the way that it, it works is you're you're really not supposed to go anywhere near trauma for for quite a while. You tra- trauma is you've been going for for months and and months and months and months. We we only address trauma prior to that point if it's like a serious serious right now impediment to the person's life or their current auditing. If that's the case, then we'll do what's called an assist, which is where we will do a teeny bit of trauma handling right now, but just enough to, to, to get whatever that one thing is. If the person was raped, obviously, like, or if they got into a bad car accident, like right then and there, like it just happened, those kind of situations, we would immediately put the person into what's called a, a, a NED assist, new aerodynamics assist, which is a trauma assist where you're not going through and blowing out huge sections of trauma you're just you're just going to address that one thing and you're going to blow that one thing out and then what we do is is we address all of the uh emotions associated with that incident we address all of the numbnesses associated with that incident all of the thoughts associated with that incident all of the pains associated with it there's this whole thing called a pre-assessment and there's like i don't know like like 12 or 14 different things emotions, numbnesses, thoughts, uh, and you're, you're, you're going through and you're anything that's connected to this trauma, you're going to go through and you're going to handle it, handle it, handle it, handle it. It's a, it's a, it's, it's like running the trauma through this like gigantic wood chipper. Right. And once there's, there's nothing, the trauma is gone and there's nothing attached to it. That's when 
we we end off on the particular assist and we don't we don't take it any farther than that until they get to the actual trauma level because by that point they're they're built up slowly to the point where by the time they actually get to the trauma level they can just they can just mow through it like it's nothing so the trauma the trauma level is is very 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 easy for people to address once they're ready to address it some people are ready to address it right away but the whole point of of the reason why there's that bridge and it's step by step is because it's supposed to be able to you take anyone through those steps and anyone's going to be able to get up to the point where they can run trauma even if it's even if right out the gate they're able to run it we still get them through all the steps which which for a person like that is going to go 10 times faster than a person who who you can take a person who's just completely down and out and you can run them through the same processes and you'll get them up to the point where they can run trauma, but it's going to just take a lot longer. It's a lot more work. And what is the other side of the? The other side is the training side. So, so training to become a professional therapist. The first level is called student hat. So that's basically a, a, a massive course on how to study. It's, it's the basic study manual course times a thousand, basically. Uh, there's lectures you listen to, and there's drills that you do, and there's all the stuff that you do. And then from there, you move up into, into what's called um, the professional training routines. So professional training routines are essentially uh, communication and control-related drills. Very intense. By the time you complete that whole section of your training, you're trained in these tiny little increments, you're trained, 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 trained. And then the final product of that training is that you can handle absolutely any situation with communication alone. So you get to the point where you're actually physically moving someone around the room. Uh, you're drilling. It's a drill with somebody else. And you have to command them and get them across the room. And they're like, they can freak out and they can like try to run away from you and they can do like all this crazy ass stuff and you can't get mad, you can't get pissed, you can't get upset, you can't cry, you can't do nothing. You have to be like completely in control of your own emotions and you have to be able to get that person and 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 they they drill you to such a to such an extent that if you so much as even move your eye a little bit that shows that you're even the slightest bit irritated, it's a flunk. You're you no matter what the person says to you, no matter what the person does, you have to admire the person, appreciate the person, control the person with with respect and move them and have them do whatever it is that you command them to do, despite anything that they might be doing otherwise. That's a, that's a pretty big section of the training. And then from there, right after that, you start tr- training in how to use the e-meter. Uh, there's a lot of like electrical training on that particular step. Uh, they teach you about the basis of, of electronics, the basis of voltage, the basis of ohms, the basis of amperes, how all of that works, right? Which is really pretty fast. It's, a, it's almost like a little mini uh, electrical engineer step, right? After that, that's when you start getting into like the mainline actual levels of of the therapy training. So at that point, you're learning how to actually do various types of processes and diagnostic procedures from that point up. And that's the that's the training side of the the bridge. We call it the bridge, right? Do they ever switch places? Like somebody that's going through all the all of that process. Do they also ever go through the other process and vice versa, or do they kind of stick to their own lanes? They're two completely separate things. One, one you're doing with a therapist, 
and and it's like a whole different section of the organization. And one you're doing in course rooms. You're a trainee. You're a student, right? You can do both at the same time. That's what I did. And then on the training side, once you get up to a certain level, uh, you start doing internships. And intern the internships at the church are completely product based. So there's no like there's hardly any tests. There's no like question and answer. It's just you you take a person, you do this process. And they walk away uh, light as a feather with a big smile on their face. If you can't do it, you're going to keep doing it until you can do it. And then once you can do it, now we need to see that you can do it every single time standardly without ever fucking it up. The The passing standard of an internship is really intense. Uh, the passing standard is the entire session is videotaped. And if you slur one fucking word, or if you say one single thing, a little too slow, a little too fast. If you say one single word that is not the exact word that's supposed to be used in that situation, the entire session is a flunk. So if the session is an hour and a half long and you go an hour and 29 minutes and then you slur one word, the whole hour and a half is a flunk. It's very intense. It's intense. Yeah. But the training, the training level is it's a very high standard because once you complete the internship, you you get what's called a gold seal. And the gold seal means that you're now an auditor for life. And that's what you are. Yeah. It's a, it's a lifetime certification. Yeah. It's so fascinating. How did you, and you've written a couple books, but they have nothing to do with Scientology. No. And they have nothing to do with the, the law stuff that I do either. They're totally, totally separate. I'm curious to know, I know that one of your, and we're just going to toggle straight out of this, and I appreciate you telling me so much about that stuff. It's it's one of those things where I've always wanted to ask these questions, but there's so much divisiveness within and without that conversation that it's frustrating because as an interviewer, you want somebody to speak their truth without them feeling like you're judging them, A, or B, like they're going to hold something back because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. So to, to I appreciate be, that you were open. To be very, very transparent, uh, I, I find it a bit sad, but a majority of the people who get involved in Scientology and who are involved in Scientology, they really enjoy the the therapy aspect of receiving the therapy, right? And that's fine, okay? There's nothing wrong with that, Okay. If a person wants to be a great actor or they want to be this or they, they have a professional thing or they're they're a mom and they just want to uh, be a better mom or 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 whatever, that that is primarily what most people are doing actively in the religion as a part of the religion, right? There is there is not a a and this is sad, and I hope this changes, and I think this will change in the future. The, the percentage of people who get trained, especially on, on a very, very serious level, is not a, a, a large percentage of the people who are involved, sadly. Um, I, I am a, a unique person in, in the church because I found that part to be the most fascinating part, um, more so than the, the receiving the auditing, which I also find very fascinating. But that, that is the primary issue is that the person's receiving all this therapy, but they don't really understand everything that was going on. A person doesn't really need to totally understand all about auditing to receive auditing. 
Sure, that makes sense. I mean, it's not like a psychiatrist. You don't have to be a psychiatrist to get therapy. Exactly. It's the same idea, right? So every time someone starts a new process, there's there's this little like like color-coded children's education manual little thing. And it's like literally like nine pages. And it's just like, what does this person need to know at the absolute most basic level in order to get the maximum gains from the therapy that they're receiving? That's all they do. They just do this tiny little thing and then boom, they're off to the races. So asking a person a lot of questions about these things and how it works, if they haven't done the formal training, uh, in my opinion, if they haven't specifically done the training and at least one internship, that's my opinion. Uh, you're gonna, you're, you may or may not encounter a difficulty in the person understanding it well enough to answer these kinds of questions. That makes sense, of course. Yeah. So you have a unique perspective. Yeah. And speaking of unique perspectives, are you okay on time? I know I've kept you. Quiet. Oh yeah, no, no. I, I clear like my whole schedule for these shows because I some of these shows go hours and hours and hours, and I'm okay with that. We <laughs> won't do that to you, but you've already made it pretty clear no pun intended, that you were a bit of a renegade as a kid growing up. Obviously, your brain moves much faster than any societal norms. And and so, well, I mean, I understand that completely. Having myself graduated from high school with a 1.7, I was bored out of my mind. Mm. It made no sense. I didn't understand why anybody would even bother with the more moronic experience of High school. That was my experience. I know some people love it, whatever. So I recognize people whose brains just move too fast for the the norm, whatever the norm. Well, here we are. How much of that do you apply on on not? uh, I I could say day to day. That's almost unfair. How much do you apply of all that that you learn in an entire year? Right. Well, the high school is meant to teach people how to get up and go to work every day and come home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you have already established that you as a human being are on the on the edges. You know, you are what they call an outlier, I think. And your friend from childhood, Michael, Michael, was it? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, Michael, Mike. Mike, Mike yeah. yeah. Uh, Michael also was an outlier. Someone oh, God. Very- so even now, he's he's. He's the best. He's the yeah, best. Yeah. So anybody, and that's the thing about those sorts of kids and teenagers, they end up trouble all the time yeah. because they're seeking curiosity, experiment, you know, reward of learning new things. But anyway, so how did you stumble into the idea that screw it, I don't need to pay taxes? <laughs> so the very, very short version to the answer to your question is. Uh, I've gotten so good at this, I can explain it in almost a, almost a sentence. The term United States in law is legally defined as Washington, D.C. People only have a federal and state tax liability if they live in Washington, D.C. A U.S. citizen is someone who citizen means they live there. U.S. means United States. The definition of United States in the United States Code is only and exclusively the District of Columbia. So if you are a U.S. citizen and you say that on all of your documentation and you say it completely of your own free will, you are stating under penalty of perjury, which is up to one year in jail, that's a felony, that you live in the District of Columbia. Because you live in the District of Columbia, 
you have a federal and a state tax obligation. There is an entire section of the US code, and there is tons of law on how to move yourself out of Washington, D.C. And it comes from a section of the U.S. code. I can I, I usually try to give the codes for people on these shows because I don't want to just be a talking head. So, so the definition of United States comes from, and you can go on Google and you can type this in. Uh, you type in 28 space USC space 3002. You go down to subsection 15. And definition A of subsection 15. So if we go on to Google 28 space USC, which stands for United States Code, space 3002, you click on Cornell University, which is my favorite because they have some clickable definitions and stuff that are really cool. And it just it just looks visually better, in my opinion. Definition number 15, it says United States means, and then you have definition letter A, a federal corporation. There is only one federal corporation, and that's the uh, District of Columbia. Okay, and then you're going to open up another tab, and you're going to type in UCC, which stands for Uniform Commercial Code, space nine dash three zero seven. You're going to click on Cornell University. It's going to say location of debtor. Go down to subsection H. Subsection H says location of United States. And then it says the United States is located in the District of Columbia. So what you learn very, very rapidly is you learn that a U.S. citizen is someone who lives in the District of Columbia. The District of Columbia is a foreign corporate zone it is not a part of the united states of america at all not yet at least now it will never be it's impossible they've tried so many times and it'll never happen and the reason why is because it's physically impossible it's a the state the states are non-incorporated the district of columbia is incorporated there are completely different structures it's impossible that the District of Columbia will ever become a state. It's never going to happen. And when it asks you, are you a citizen of the United States? I can't remember. I think you have to sign, I hereby state, I am the citizens of the United States. That's yep. that signature page. Well, you see that everywhere. You see that on your driver's license application when you're at the DMV. You see it on your passport application, the DS-11 form. You see it on the I-9 form when you're uh, filling out an international uh, employment uh, validity form for any job application. You even see it on the W-9 form, which is the form that everyone signs when they're working at a job. At the bottom of the W-9 form and section two, I certify under penalty of perjury that, and then I think it's point number three, I am a U.S. citizen or other U.S. person. So the thing is, is that you are signing to the fact that you live in the District of Columbia all the time. The or that you're part of a company called the United States. The District of Columbia is not a part of America. So if you're stating in nine different places under penalty of perjury that you live in the District of Columbia, you're not actually an American at all. You don't live in America. So what does that mean? That means you don't have the Constitution. You don't have the Bill of Rights. You're part of a totally separate corporate world. 
And inside that corporate world, they call the shots and they create the rules. And part of their rules is that if you live in our corporate world, you're going to pay all these taxes and all these fines and you're going to play by our rules. Now, if you go to uh, 8 USC, 8 USC 1101, which is the definition section, and you click on Cornell University and you scroll down to subsection 21, you're going to see a, a definition here. It says here, the term national means a person owing permanent allegiance to a state. Okay. So there's these two terms that everyone's heard. They think they mean the same thing, citizenship and nationality. Okay. Those two things have completely different definitions. A citizen is basically essentially an employee or officer of a corporate zone. A national is a person who does not live in the corporate zone. They live outside the corporate zone, which generally infers they're living on a non-incorporated landmass of one of the original 50 states of the union. So their own terminology, if they say, if anyone asks me, are you a U.S. citizen? I, the actual term, there's seven different terms that I can use to describe my uh, to describe my my nationality as per their terms. Okay, the the six of them can be found at 18 USC one section one one two. Okay, and in that one, it's it's all about protection of of foreigners basically right because you're a foreigner when you become national because you're you're foreign to united states i don't live in united states okay so the six different terms that the that the corporation called united states uses to describe people who are living in america are foreign government foreign official internationally protected person international organization national of the united states and official guest. Now, the other term, the seventh term that they that they use to describe us is basically based off of what state that you're in. Like, for example, you and I, when we become nationals, I am a Californian. So, so under nationality slash citizenship on any documentation, I don't put U.S. citizen. I put Californian. That is the legal term that they want me to use on all of my forms, okay, as per their own their own stuff. I could put official guest, national, I could put uh, a foreign government, I could put any of those terms on there, and those are the terms that they want us using as foreigners to the federal corporation, okay? So uh, when you when you move out of the corporate zone and you move back to the state on paper in the legal world, at that point, everything changes. You regain all of your rights. You regain the constitution. You are now an American. As an American, you don't have to, uh, you don't have a federal tax liability. The definition of taxpayer, by the way, the definition of taxpayer comes from uh, 26 USC 7701. You go to uh, Cornell University, you scroll down to definition number 14, and the definition of taxpayer is the term taxpayer means any person subject to any internal revenue tax. 
A U.S. citizen would, by definition, be a taxpayer. A national, by definition, would not be a taxpayer. And that's essentially the way it works. It's It goes way beyond what I'm explaining. I'm explaining just the basics, the front end, the introductory. This is like an introductory session, okay? It goes way, 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 way. This is like, this is the beginning of like an entire underground uh, maze, okay? But basically, it's it's very simple in my opinion. You're either, you're either a citizen or you're a national. You either live in... Washington, D.C., or you live out of Washington, D.C. That's it. As a national, are you entitled to do things like get health insurance and and go to public education, or is that taken from you? Things get more complicated. So, So the way it works is when you're born and your parents sign your birth certificate and get you a social security number, there's a corporation that's opened through the health department of your name in all capital letters. Okay. So what happens is if you look at all your bills or you look at almost anything that comes in the mail, it always has your name in all capital letters, even your social security card, even your credit cards, everything, right? Those that your name in all capital letters is in reference to a corporation, okay? Now, when you learn about all this stuff, what happens is right now, everyone is operating as though they're themselves and the corporation are the same thing, okay? That's the problem right? They're writing to you as a corporation and you're saying, yes, I'm a corporation. This is my response as a corporation. Once you separate out and you understand how all that works, what happens is you start operating as two separate entities. You're operating as you, as the human, as the, as the, the human being, and then you're also operating your corporation as though it's a corporation. So every single person in the entire world that has ever received anything with their name in all capital letters, congratulations, you're a business owner. Your name in all capital letters is a business and you are a business owner. So once you learn that, now the next question becomes, okay, I'm a business owner. How do I operate that business? Once you learn how to operate that business, the business, it's like a portal. The business is inside the system and you can still operate inside the system using the business, but you are completely outside the system and you have full limited liability and protection from the system itself. That is the the, the ultra simplified version of, of where this whole rabbit hole winds you up with. Basically. And you don't pay taxes. I don't pay. T- I'm not a taxpayer by definition, by their definition. Now, my corporation in all capital letters is a taxpayer by definition. So that gets into the flow of taxation. That gets into a lot of different questions. But the, the, the ultimate fact is when you're filling out these forms, these forms are completely voluntary. They even tell you in the tax code that it's, it's based off of voluntary compliance, right? So who is the one receiving the income? Is it the corporation of your name in all capital letters, or is it you as a human being? If you as a human being is the one that's receiving the income, you don't have a tax liability because you aren't by definition a taxpayer. So all you have to do is just learn how to differentiate between yourself as a human and the corporation, and you're writing documentation on behalf of you as a human, not on behalf of you as a corporation. Are you teaching classes on this? Well, yeah, of course. I, I, my, my, I have a free. It's called a free contract killer course, and it's all about how to kill all of these various contracts. And and one of the things that a lot of it's based off of 
is if you go back to the one I was describing earlier, which is the definition section in the Internal Revenue Code, 26 USC 7701, if you go back to that and you go to definition number one, this, this is probably one of the most important definitions in all of everything that I teach. It's the definition of the term person. The, the definition of the term person, and they even put this on a lot of the tax forms. You could just look at like a W-9 form and they put the definition of the word person down in the lower section. The term person shall be construed to mean and include an individual, a trust, estate, partnership, association, company, or corporation. So when they ask you on a W-9 form, person, 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 or when they're asking you, are you a U.S. person? Or when they're asking you on bank documentation, what person is opening these accounts? You don't know if they're referring to the corporation, which is legally by definition a person, or if they're talking about you, which legally by definition is a person. So when they say person, 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 and you sign everything, what they're saying to you is they're saying the corporation, not you. So the definition of the term person is really, really, really key. I would say the two most important definitions is United States and person. This is what? how they get away with things like eminent domain then. They yes. can argue that eminent domain is because you never were entitled to your own land in the first place because you, the person, isn't the one that owns it. It's the corporation, which they actually own. Uh, it gets even more complicated than that because a quick claim deed or a guarantor deed are both deeds that are held by the county. And then you're basically just a beneficiary of that. They actually hold the superior title, which is why you have to pay um, uh, Tax. property taxes. Yeah. And it's why you need permits. So there's actually a whole process that uh, a bunch of people that are around me that are doing, and it's really cool, called a land patent process. And there's actually a, a government agency called the Bureau of Land Management, and they actually have a website. You can go, you can type into Google BLM land patent lookup, and you'll see it says like GLO lookup, and, and you can click on it and you can actually go through. And they have all the original land patents signed by the president of the United States, all handwritten. All the documentation is there. And you can order certified copies. And there's a whole process where you bring that land patent up to present time. Uh, you create a summary where you you summarize all the different deeds all the way back to the land patent. You print off the land patent. You have to do like a public claim of the land. And then for 60 days, it has to go without anyone contesting the fact that you own that land. And then after this whole process is completed, you have what's called a land patent now. And what that does is it the, the county no longer owns or has any rights over the property whatsoever. You no longer have to pay any property taxes and you no longer need to get any permits for your property at all whatsoever. And you essentially what happens is your property becomes a separate country at that point. I, I imagine you better be living next to a water source in those cases. Otherwise, I can't imagine that utilities would be too happy to come and service utilities that the utility company. So what happens at that point when you complete the land patent process is uh, you have to privately contract with every single individual entity that you want to have access to your home. So for example, the police, if you would like to have police services, you have to actually draw up a private contract with the police uh, department and you have to actually pay a fee, a monthly fee or a yearly fee, whatever it is, you're basically privately contracting with the police department at that point. And then whatever the contract states, 
they have to follow what the contract states. Because what happens is if you don't have a private contract, once the land patent process is completed, your address comes completely out of their computer systems. They're not actually physically allowed to step foot on the actual meets and bounds of the property in the land patent. Fascinating. Same with fire department. Yeah. I know that like the, during the Malibu fires, they, people hired, uh, extra firemen. They, they, they did this, they paid an extra fee to have firemen come and specifically safeguard their homes. And I'm sure Malibu is probably an area where these big, rich, rich guys probably know about some of this stuff. A lot of this information uh, is in like the ultra, ultra wealthy, like mega, mega wealth zone. You see a lot of this information, but it's not really information that they share. For whatever reason, maybe they're just scared. It's not. It's not a matter of like they're all bad people because they're not sharing. We, we. I don't know why they're not sharing. If they do know, like for, I know one billionaire, and he knows almost nothing about any of this, but he does know the definition of the word person. And he even told me he's like Brandon. He's like the downfall of this country and the downfall of law was when the definition of the word person was redefined. And I looked at him like, holy shit, he knows. But, but I asked him a little bit more and, and he knew almost hardly nothing more than that. He didn't know the definition of the term United States. Wow. This is very fast. I could talk to you for hours. Yeah. Uh, Would you let everyone know uh, the best way to find you to get more information, take a class, that kind of thing? I have a very crazy, super crazy website. Uh, it's one stupid fuck.com and the one is spelled out. So it's O N E, uh, super wild. Just, just to pad and buffer anyone watching this who, uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty wild, really, really crazy website. Um, but I have a free contract killer course and I named it that way on purpose. Cause I know it's kind of edgy. Um, And the whole point is to understand all of these various contracts that you're involved in. And then if you so choose how to eliminate or clarify or change or adjust all of these contracts, Uh, that's basically what the course is essentially. Great. And I'll put links to everything we've talked about as best I can on heyhumanpodcast.com so that people can go there too and find you. Yeah. Brandon, thank you so much for spending so much time with me and uh, what a wild ride. Yeah, yeah, it's uh it's been it's been fun and exciting. I I definitely can't complain about my life. It's uh it's been it's been exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. And it continues to be very exciting. Absolutely. Well, stay in touch also. Thank you. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, neighbor. Maybe, maybe I'll come down to the beach one of these days. Please, you're always welcome. <laughs> Thank you for listening everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.